Hi. The, uh, oh man, I always really hate following the inspiring speeches. So um, that was great. I really, I, I, there was something, there were a lot of things that, that Hash just said. That One of the ones was that uh, the solitary way, trying to fight against the solitary way, trying to realize going alone. This is, I think, one of the first times, about 17 years into being a professional comedian, I started to think, oh, I'm beginning to get it right. And the reason was, I was doing a gig in Nottingham, and after I'd done my show, I was in the bar, and this man came up to me, and he said, I'm quite annoyed with you. And I went, oh, sorry, what have I done? He went, well, I have spent my whole life believing that I am quite weird. But I have just sat in with your audience, and I've watched your show, and I've realized we're all bloody weird, which means I'm quite normal, which is frankly disappointing. And... I love that moment because that's part of the older I've got. In fact, there was another lovely moment that night where it was a stage about as high as this. And uh, I was on stage beforehand. Sometimes I just hang around beforehand and uh, chat to people. And uh, a, a man came up to me and he went, uh, hello, Robin. I went, oh, hello. You, you've been to one of my gigs before. He went, yeah, 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 a few months back. He said, I'll tell you what, to be honest, I wasn't going to come tonight because, uh, well, it was my mother's funeral today. But then I thought, I fancy a laugh. So no pressure. Now, what I loved about both of those things that happened that night was, first of all, the fact that I think in, the, in probably in the last 10 years, maybe a bit more, I've realized that what I love about comedy, what I love about that form of communication is that every now and again, you can reveal what's inside your head. And we have this, this problem. And by being revealing what's inside your head, what's inside lots of other people's heads probably as well. This is the advantage you have as a comedian, as a public speaker. You can go on and you're paid to sometimes say things which can seem to other people quite insane. And sometimes people are sitting in the audience going, oh, I had had that thought and I thought I was insane. But it turns out there's at least three of us who have at least the same level of sanity in this room. And this to me is a very important thing because there was something my friend Philippa told me about, uh, about three years ago. She said, the trouble with being human is that we judge everyone else from their exterior and ourselves from the interior. And there will always be a disparity. So we think we're the only animal. Most other animals don't have this issue, right? You know, dogs in a park don't occasionally go, I mean, that greyhound's very attractive, but there's so many others around, I, I think I'll show myself up. They don't care. They just go off and they shag by a bin and then they leave. And that's that. Whereas most of us don't do that as often. And... That fighting with that disparity, which is, if we go to a party, you go to a party and you walk in and you're nervous beforehand. You think everything's going to be all right. But you go, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to say. And then you walk in, you go, everyone else is so confident. Look at Polly over there. Oh, look at Mike over there. Oh, they're drinking Prosecco and they're telling jokes. And they're all, oh, they're having such a great time, aren't they? They're laughing. And, and I'm not. I'm terrified. I'm, ter I'm, I'm so scared. But that's not how you look. You're not actually at the party going, ah, ah, ah. You're going, oh, yeah, actually, I heard quite a funny one the other day, actually, right? You don't realize that everyone else there who's looking confident and happy, inside they're going, I think I've forgotten the punchline. How am I going to get out of this one? Oh, that thing I've just said could easily be misconstrued. I hope they're not on Twitter. You know, all of those things. This battle that we have the whole time, uh, the fact that this is... It's like, I remember Philippa told me another story which I think had a similar thing, which is our fear of shame is one of the things that keeps so many of our voices inside. Our fear that we are not as the others are is this great battle. Philippa told me this story which I, I thought was... Um, it was about 
Samaritans, when you're working at the Samaritans. And so sometimes old women ring up the Samaritans, and this happens quite often. And they'll just say, hello, I think I'm probably ringing the wrong phone line, really. But um, I wonder if you could help. I've got a lot of men's clothes that um, I, I want to donate to a charity. But I, I can't find out if there's a shop in my area. And the person on the other end will go, oh, let me just check. I'll have a look. Oh, you, you said you were in Watford. Okay, there we go. Uh, yeah, 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 there's, uh, there's an Oxfam there. Oh, thank you very much. And then they keep you on the line and go, oh, can I just check, by the way? Why, why have you got all these men's clothes to give away? And at that point, the person will say, oh... And my husband died last week. Now that to me is a fascinating thing. Because we have to create a cover. So often. Now I'm glad that in that situation, if that conversation is dealt with properly, there is a point of getting to the reality. Breaking down the carapace. But nevertheless, this thing that we as human beings, we spend so much of our life trying to tell people another story that is not true of, of who we are. And that can become very, very problematic. That can be... I mean, I, I've been fascinated sometimes standing in front of audiences where when you come up with a new idea and you think, oh, I'm going to do that, I think that's a bit of observational comedy. And then all the times you walk to the microphone and think, what if I say, hey, you know when? And the whole audience go, no. No, none of us know that at all. You truly are the weird one, I'm afraid, right? But actually, more often than not, that's not what... I, I remember a few years ago, I started talking about impulsive thoughts. Now, impulsive thoughts were fascinating to me. I, uh, I, I started off this conversation with someone, I found, and, and, and this one, I'll give you the, the typical impulsive thought. I'll give you one of the, the most frequent ones, is when you're holding a baby. Now, it might be your baby, it might be someone else's baby. Now, it happens that you're holding the baby near an open window, or perhaps quite close to a cliff. And out of nowhere, as you're holding the baby, you suddenly go, oh my God! I just imagined throwing the baby over the cliff. I'm sure I had a very strong urge to throw the baby over the cliff. I never knew I had urges to throw babies over cliffs, but I think I do. Pauline, do you want to take the baby back? I, uh, my arms are very tired. I did not imagine just throwing her over the cliff. You want her back immediately? No, I see why, right? So, and I would ask the audience, I would say, who here, who here has ever had that experience? And I'd be very specific. I'd say, just so you know, it's when you're holding a baby, you suddenly go, oh my God, I just imagined throwing the baby over a cliff. Not... <laughs> oh, oh no. So that's, uh, and each night, of course, audiences are always, you know, slightly worried, but people at the front never put their hands up because, you know, because they've got used to doing that. Yes. Oh, yeah. right. So that happens. But overall, some nights it would be three people. Sometimes it would be 20 people. Sometimes it would be 50 people. And I would then explain to them. I would, I would say, quite often there might be someone at the front who had their hand up and I'll say, right, everyone here, you need to know something about that man there, right? You need, any, especially if you've got babies, you need to know, and that you could sometimes see the person the audience going, oh my God, I wish I hadn't put my hand up now. I say, what you need to know, what you need to know is that man there, that man there is the safest pair of hands to hold a baby. He's really thought it through. The rest of you, I have no idea how you've got that far. And this is because what's actually going on in that situation when you're holding the baby is not a desire, it's the fact that in any moments of jeopardy, we create a little public information film in our head. So you're holding the baby, and suddenly it just goes, remember, you're holding a baby. So when holding a baby, don't throw it over a cliff. <laughs> Good night and sleep well. Now, 
And this goes on in loads of different situations, right? This is one of those things where, in fact, like sometimes train stations are a very typical kind of one, where some days you're, you're standing on the platform and you think, now, I don't think I've got an urge to throw myself in front of the train, but at the same time, I don't trust my own legs. I'm going to walk back and hold on to a bench, right? Sometimes there's someone stood in front of you to go, I don't think I've got an urge to shove him in front of the train. But that ringtone is annoying. The, um, I, I had so many different... One man said to me, he said, I've not had the one with the baby, but I was talking to my very elderly uncle who fought in the Korean War, and we were just having a drink at a party, right? And just as we were drinking, uh, he started to tell me a very, very sad story of something that happened to a friend of his during the war. And I was listening intently, and then out of nowhere I thought, oh my God, what if I suddenly leant forward, kissed my uncle directly on the lips, and stuck my tongue in? And I couldn't get rid of the image, so I had to make an excuse and leave. And, and, these all, and I know in some way that it sounds flippant, but this thing is actually, when we have these thoughts, we are so scared sometimes. We are so scared of having the wrong thoughts, of sometimes attaching. There was a man, one of the first times I talked about holding a baby, I was a man about early 20s, and he came up to me and he said, thanks very much. I said, oh, sorry, what? He said, my sister had a baby about a month ago. And the first time she handed the baby over to me, I just imagined throwing the baby on the floor. And so now, every time, I make up an excuse and I don't hold the baby. And now I realize that's nothing to do with actually what I want to do. It's just a little thing, a little trick in my head. And if I read it properly, it's fine. And that, to me, is a really important thing. That bit of first of all, because I think so many of the problems that, that we see now, so many of the egos that we see now, so many of the people pumping themselves up and creating masks for themselves, and so much of the kind of arrogance, so much of that actually comes from fear of what we really are as human beings. And I, I, I have found when I sometimes talk about, I mean, when I, when I wrote the book, for instance, I, I wrote a book thinking it was going to make me much better, and uh, instead it actually sent me into therapy because... Uh, I, uh, I, I interviewed five therapists for the book, and at the end of each interview, they went, I presume you're in therapy, Robin. And I went, no. And they went, oh. And uh, so I saw a Freudian, because they're great. Because uh, the great thing about Freudians is some days you go to them and you think, I've got nothing at all, and they always find it. So uh, I left my bag outside the office one day. She went, why are you leaving the bag outside the office? I don't know, mother. The, um, it's just the... I do find that that bit, again, of trying to piece together who we are. Like I was explaining one day to an audience about voices in my head, right? I have a lot of voices in my head. And I know they're me, okay, but they're quite busy. And I was expressing this, and I'd not realized how many other people had this same kind of problem sometimes. Like this now, watching everyone else being magnificent, right? And then standing up here, and I, um, the, the voices in my head, I've got five voices, right? At this particular time now, stood in front of you, there's one voice that's roughly what you're hearing now, right? With a, a vague sense of worry that I'm going over time, right? So that's one voice. And that has little changes every now and again. Then there's a second voice, which is basically someone on an old Remington typewriter just hammering away, going, I've come up with an idea, I've come up with an idea, I've come up with an idea, I've come up with an idea. Then there's a third voice going, don't be an idiot. Monday night, 5 by 15, that kind of idea will die on its arse. Everyone will buy the other four books and you'll be sat alone. Then there's kind of like a fourth, with a fourth voice just going, why do you even do this? You could have done clerical work. You're fine. It's like, mother said, don't seek the approbation of strangers on a daily basis. It won't be good for you. She was correct. Silly, silly, silly. And then the fifth voice is basically just screaming. 
And, um, and I kind of find that, so I was, I don't know how much, I better check how much I've got. The, uh, but I do, I do find that, that, uh, that sense sometimes of when you can, I, I once did a thing, with the voices in my head, sometimes I walk around my house doing those voices out loud, right? It's different people that I like. And uh, so there's lots of voices that I like doing. I work quite a lot with Brian Cox, so if I'm trying to understand science, I just kind of sit there and think, isn't it wonderful and shiny? You know, and then, uh, and... And I like doing, and, and so I just wonder, and, and there was this one voice that I used to a lot, which was an actor called Nicky Henson, who only died a few months ago, wonderful actor, who was in uh, a thing called Witchfinder General, and uh, he was also in Psychomania, and he was in the Royal Shakespeare Company, wonderful, wonderful performer. And um, he had this really low, gravelly kind of 1970s voice, the kind of voice that someone has if they're in movies where they wear nylon shirts open to the waist, and they've got a neckerchief on, and they're climbing into a speedboat with Patrick Mower and a bottle of Malibu to go looking for a girls in a volcano. Right, he's got that kind of voice, right? So some days I would think, today's a day to talk to myself as Nicky Henson. Hmm, what do I want to drink? Maybe a cup of tea? I don't think so. I'm Nicky Henson. A black coffee? No, too obvious. I know, I'm going to surprise myself and have a sachet of hot chocolate. Right, so I'd kind of do that for the day. And... Um, after I'd done that for quite a while, one day I got a part in a play. It was a, a radio play. It was a very kind of last-minute thing. And uh, when I got there, it was a studio in Twickenham. I was there first. The producer went, oh, thank heaven you're here. I'm sorry the, 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 it's so late. The, uh, the, the phone did it. All. It was fine. The, um, just two hours. Okay, sure. The, um, no one leaves till they have Stockholm Syndrome. It's in the contract. The, um, you're going to enjoy the Kool-Aid. Anyway, so the... Um, I got this, uh, um, it's really hard, do you know, I've never talked about this book in less than an hour and a half. Anyway, so the, um, uh, in fact, the first three book festivals I did, I didn't even get to the point of talking about what the book was about. I merely exchanged the process that led to it. Anyway, so the, um, but anyway, so I met, <laughs> so I, 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 I've got this part in this play, and, uh, and the producer goes, here's the script, and I'm looking through the script, and it's a nice little part. And then I look at the front of the script, and it's got the other actors in it, right? Like proper actors, real actors, like Harriet Walter. I think Harriet Walter's brilliant. I love her. I was like, oh, bloody hell, Harriet Walter. And then I look at the bottom, I go, Nicky Henson. Nicky Henson's in this. She just goes, yes, he is. I said, wow. She said, is that a problem? I went, no, not at all. I'm a big fan of Nicky Henson. She went, we're big fans of Nicky Henson too. I said, I know this might sound a little bit weird, but some days I spend the whole day talking to myself as if I were Nikki Henson. She said, really? I said, yes. She said, you should tell him that. Actors like that kind of thing. <laughs> well, I did, and they don't. So, um, I will... Uh, I'm just... I, 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 do you know what? I thought I'd plan what I was going to do in 15 minutes. It doesn't fit. So anyway, I'll... Um, I just want to finish by, this is just one, one very quick thing. I was, I was going to open with a poem, and instead I'm going to close it with it. It's, a, um, it's not really a poem, it's kind of sentences in a shape. And, uh, but it's, um, I was thinking again about our sense of shame and our sense of worry and the fact that it can hold us back so much. Our sense of, of the fact that we end up having to have our own kind of sense of dishonesty. And I was also thinking about sometimes when we hold ourselves back and those moments of regret that we try to avoid. And um, there are two, in, in, in the, the book is dedicated to a comedian called Barry Crimmins, who was a wonderful 
activist, comedian, uh, a really great man, and I recommend this documentary about him called Call Me Lucky. Please watch it. He was a really good human being. I interviewed him for the book. I thought we were going to be friends for a very long time, and sadly, he suddenly died. And um, I was also thinking that earlier this year, Terry Jones died, who I was lucky enough to meet. And I was also thinking about the brilliant Neil Innes, Neil Innes, who was a one. And I was thinking about the fact that I'd been fortunate. Those three people I'd actually met. And when I was younger, I think I wouldn't have told them how much I loved their work. But fortunately, somewhere in middle age, I was like, fuck it. I don't care. I'm going to say that I love your work. And I was thinking about those moments when sometimes you hold back and you shouldn't. So this is kind of just something on, on, on the day that, uh, that Terry Jones died. And think about him and Neil Innes and Barry Crimmins. Let me celebrate you now as you stand before me while you can still hear the cheer. Don't let me wait until you're gone to be fond. Don't let me fear embarrassment and stifle my delight. How worry of impending shame leads us to talk about love, but only when there can be no response. Derision is easily dispensed, brickbat easier to receive, an acknowledgement of what our self-loathing knew already. We fumble and blush when praised or when praising, waiting to be caught out and rejected. I loved her book. I loved his art. I loved their mind. Past tense. It's hard not to fear the present, hard to be present, hard not to bend under the cynic stare. Keep the volume of things unsaid, the regrets of silence, as thin as it can be. Let it take little space on the shelf in your head. No need to be ashamed of joy, the giving or receiving of it. Avoid the uselessness of regret. Worry you have been overwhelming with your adoration rather than fear you have crushed with the negative. And I said all that in my head as I saw you across the bar and I thought maybe next time. Thank you.